we see versions of composition throughout nature, throughout other artwork that we're seeing. We've been seeing this everywhere our whole lives. And so we instinctively recognize it and we find order and comfort in it. Hello, all my beautiful and well-composed creatives out there. Thank you for joining me on the Sage Arts Podcast. This is Sage, and we are getting into our first kind of design lesson of this new year, 2024. And I have to tell you, it has been so difficult getting to sit down and just record this. I am recording this on Friday night, which is when I usually get it posted because it's just been a nutty week. So much stuff is going on. I can't even explain, won't even explain, won't bore you with it. So we're going to just kind of get into it instead of a lot of preamble and stuff like I usually do. The quick business notes, just if you need to contact me, the sagearts.com has a contact page. That's where you can do donations for, uh, well, through Buy Me a Coffee and PayPal. And there's a newsletter you can sign up for there so you know when all the new episodes come out and get any of the extras that come along with them. And yeah, and, and thank you everybody who wrote me about the last episode, the chat between Christy Friesen and I. We hit a nerve with, or not nerve, we, we hit a point of contemplation for a lot of people, mostly in the why does everything have to have a purpose? Why does everything have to have multiple uh, reasons for doing it, that kind of thing. I thought that was really interesting because, you know, sometimes we go through life thinking, I've got this crazy thing. No one else has this crazy thing. And that was one of the things I thought I was always doing that wasn't very common, but apparently it's really common. (laughs) So the whole point of that episode was to go out and be a child and just enjoy things and let your creativity flow through you naturally, because the more often you do that, the more often you will be able to access that when you're in your studio and reach that real, authentic, childlike curiosity that really works and informs our artwork. Anyways, thank you, everyone. We are going to just jump right into this because there is so much to talk about (laughs) when it comes to this particular design concept, and it's going to revolve around composition. There's so much to this that I'm actually going to do it for two months because there's a lot to think about, so much to kind of dig through, so much fun to be had. So today, we are really going to just try to get grounded in composition. And I know I usually give you questions to hold on to as you listen to the conversations. And I like to do that because I think it gives you a focus to try to answer something for yourself during the podcast. But the questions here will really depend on where you are in terms of understanding composition. So maybe you can ask yourself, in relation to what you know, how you evaluate your composition. Is it instinctual or do you use grids or guidelines? How do you create focal points and how aware are you of their arrangement and the effect it has on your work? And then maybe there's an overriding question of simply, are there areas you can improve in terms of composition? And then listen for ideas that you can implement. Okay, let me start with my own question of sorts. You know how when you're working on a piece that is so perfect in your head, just so wonderful. But when you start working on it, or even maybe it doesn't even happen until you finish, you realize, eh, that just doesn't look right. This doesn't look like what I had in my head. There's definitely a shortcoming that we have translating from the malleable ideas in our head to the concrete work in front of us. Those ideas don't have to adhere so strictly to the laws of physics in our brains, right? And to the limitations of our materials. 
But when we sit down to do the actual work, all those things, physics and the limitations of the materials do come into play. So what can we do about that? Doesn't seem like there's a whole lot. But I actually think there is some things that we can do because a lot of what fails us in the execution of our ideas are kind of seated in very particular design concepts. Now, last year, we talked about a whole variety of design elements. Basically, those are the things that you bring together to make your artwork. Line, texture, shape, and even color, although we haven't hit on color yet because it's this big, long, crazy ride. Really fun, but it's been taking me a while to figure out how to talk about color in an audio-only format. So I think we'll be doing it maybe in March uh, when I finally get that all together. But in any case, for the rest of the year, we are going to talk about the things that I think get most lost in translation. They're known as the principles of design. And although they sound very academic, they are what makes working with the elements really so much fun. And like I've said before, I don't want you to take these chats about design as some kind of class. You don't need to take notes or anything, unless that's your thing, of course. But I think we really best learn art and all these concepts the same way we learned language as a child, because it is its own form of language. We learn it with constant exposure and regular attention to create an instinctual sense of what works and what doesn't. However, I do believe it's good to have a clear, conscious understanding of these concepts so that when you're flummoxed by your work or the work is feeling stale, you can turn to these understandings to figure out what could be different and maybe shake things up a bit. So yeah, I think a lot of us, we see something in our head that we want to create, but the idea is a lot more vague than they seem. And we realize that when we sit down to work on it. Because yeah, we see that we want to work with certain types of line or marks or textures or colors. We may even have some idea of composition, but then in creating, we have to make these real concrete choices. And I think one of the concepts that can make a really big difference in the translation is a thorough understanding and awareness of composition, how to do it well, how to do it properly, and how to reach in and use your gut instincts. If you've been listening to this podcast straight through, then you may have already heard me talk about composition a little bit in the episode on space, episode 44. I defined kind of what composition is so that you had a context for the use of space. So this next little bit might be a bit of repetition for you, but let's talk about what composition is. Composition is that one thing, that one principle that you absolutely can't do without because it literally means the arrangement of the elements. And it also encompasses the application of many of the principles. And again, we'll talk about those as the year goes on. But it's nice to know about the composition first, because then when we talk about those principles, you can kind of imagine how they work into the composition. So composition is a very important concept for your work. At its most basic, composition is the big picture. Think of it as the convergence of all the elements and their characteristics. So it's really your design. Strangely enough, though, <laughs> composition is sometimes just glossed over or even completely ignored or overlooked in design lessons and classes. And I believe that's because it's a bit hard to instruct people on how to compose their work in really very finite terms. It, it, this is art. There's nothing that's very black and white to start with. But especially in three-dimensional classes, it's just hard to talk about these kind of standard ideas of composition when you're talking about something that can be seen from different angles. So much of what we'll talk about will be in reference to two-dimensional composition. 
But if you work in three dimensions, you can think of it as applying to one particular view of your work from one particular position, like when the work is photographed, right? Because the balance and effect of the arrangement is going to have an impact based on the direction from which the work is viewed. And so your compositional analysis should be done from the point at which your viewers will most often or most likely see your work. Now, although composition is about the arrangement of elements, I think the better way to look at it, or at least in your mind to think about it, is that it's about relationships. It's mostly about relationships between elements, but it can also actually be about relationships between principles, between the themes that you're trying to work out, and even between the work and the artist or the work and the viewer. And when I'm talking relationships, particularly in terms of the elements, I mean how the elements relate to each other in the space of the work, like their proximity or distance from each other, if they're in higher or lower positions, so relative to each other, if they are singular or grouped, connected or disconnected. For instance, a circle could seem to be static if it's sat on or near a horizontal line, but it will seem to be rolling or moving if it's on a diagonal line, but it won't look like it's rolling if there's enough space between the circle and the diagonal line to make the circle look like it's just hovering in air. Those perceptions are all possible because of the relationship you set up between the circle and the lines. You establish that through the arrangement of the elements or composition. It's read differently because of those arrangements. In other words, your composition determines how those elements are read by the viewer largely because of the relationship to other elements, right? Now, composition is not unlike a well-structured and cleverly told story that inserts intrigue into the plot and life into the characters and how it's told. Likewise, a composition gives the elements energy and life that is supportive of your intention simply by how they are arranged. Even though composition is very conceptual, largely intuitive for most artists, it does have the fortunate advantage of having been picked apart by enough people over many, many years that there are a lot of standards, guides, and formulas that you can use to develop useful arrangements when your instincts aren't doing right by you, or as starting points, really. A lot of these guidelines we already identify intuitively, even if we can't name them or point them out. It's like you know you like chocolate, but you might not know why. You might not know it's because of, say, the contrast of astringency to sweetness that presents when it starts to melt in your mouth, along with the way it blooms into hints of fruit as it coats your tongue with its glossy texture. <laughs> now, you probably never thought about chocolate like that, but go grab a piece right now and see if you can figure out why you like it so much. It's okay. You can tell anybody that sees you getting into the chocolate stash that it's for homework and I assigned it. The point is our instincts are there to help us along. They are kind of shortcuts in our decision-making through life. They're fantastic and I personally really depend on them, but they're not as helpful when something is not right and you want to fix it because for the most part, they don't come with a lot of detailed understanding, right? like you not understanding why you like chocolate. But if you're making chocolates and they don't come out right, you would want to understand why so you can fix them. Well, same goes for art. When things are arranged in a balanced and pleasing manner, we sense it, even if we can't identify why. And we definitely sense it when artwork is not balanced. However, we commonly can't 
instantly identify why it's not working. The truth is we are actually better at identifying what's wrong with a thing before we can figure out what's right with the thing. Because for survival's sake, we are always naturally looking for problems. If we hadn't done that throughout our evolution, we wouldn't be here. We needed to be on the lookout for danger. And it's really helpful to know something is potentially going to hurt us and be able to do something about it, much more so than needing to recognize that something is beautiful or potentially enjoyable. So yes, seeing what's wrong becomes pretty obvious and it's great that we can do that, but it's ever so much more helpful if we actually know why. Because then knowing the reason why can help us figure out how to change it and make it better, right? Don't you find that you're less likely to get frustrated by things that are wrong if you know how to fix them? Well, that's because having those answers really helps. So yeah, my goal here is to make you more aware of the possibilities of composition so you are able to identify not just when a piece is not working, but the why of that with potential avenues through which to improve it. So this month, let's splash around in the concept of composition. To do so, I do need to bring in at least one of the anchoring concepts for composition. It's often listed as a principle of design or as a sub-principle under composition or under the principle of hierarchy, which I'm so looking forward to doing that, but that's going to be later as well. This concept is about focal points. So what are focal points? How do you identify them? And why are they so important for composition? Well, focal points are where our eyes go when we look at a piece. They visually draw us in like visual magnets. They're usually given a position or sense of importance in the work, often operating as a kind of home base for our eyes to return to as it explores the rest of the work. They are commonly a single element or a close grouping of elements that give the focal point a sense of being a single or even collective entity. The vast majority of artwork benefits tremendously from a focal point or two or three focal points. I say most because you can have work that doesn't seem to have a focal point, but if the viewer doesn't have a point where they naturally start the exploration of your piece, the viewer may feel lost or unsettled. But maybe that's what you want, which is why you might not use a focal point. But barring any of that needling of your viewer, you probably want to insert or recognize where your focal points are in your work. Focal points don't have to be particularly obvious to the extent that even if you don't choose one, the viewer will look for it. And they'll probably find something to act as a focal point, even if you hadn't put anything in particular for that in the work. So since viewers are going to look for them and are likely going to pick something to be a focal point, it's really best that you be in charge of what that actually is. Your focal point will be either an element that the eye is strongly drawn to, like a dot or a symbol or a face. And by the way, you should note that one of the strongest focal points you can have in pretty much any piece will be a face. So if you have a face in your work, it's probably going to be a focal point. It's another evolutionary survival thing there, you know, paying attention to the people around you or the people that you run into, figuring out who your friends are, who your foes are or whatever. In any case, our gaze can also be drawn to things with tremendous contrast or a place where an element is isolated, or they can be things that simply strike us as odd, unusual, or out of place, or particularly exciting. We are also partial to the color red. That'll really draw the eye, especially if that's the only red thing in the composition. 
There's also a thing about dark areas that look like they go inward like a tunnel or a hole because most of us want to investigate those little dark, mysterious places. Or if we don't want to investigate, it's because they scare us. And so we want to keep an eye on it. And then there's like spots of bright light, like a star or the gleam of a gem. There's also things like words really pop out to us, written or printed words. All these things and more draw the eye. But just putting like a word or a glint on a gem isn't necessarily going to make those things focal points. In truth, not even faces will be focal points if they don't have a well-defined relationship with other things in the picture that make them stand out. It doesn't take much to make a face stand out. It just has to be big enough to be seen relatively immediately and it can't be lost in like a whole sea of similarly sized and colored faces because no one face will seem more important that way, right? If it's singular, if it's front facing, for instance, in a sea of faces and all the other faces are turned sideways, it's going to seem important. It's going to seem significant that that's one face that's facing forward while none of the rest of them are. Or if it's bigger or if it's lighter or if it has a dramatic look on its face, those faces will absolutely become focal points, right? Words work in a similar way. Anyone that knows how to read will want to immediately read and interpret the words shown to them. But if there's a whole bunch of words, they can't each be focal points, right? Unless there's something to differentiate one or two or three of them. A single word in a piece of artwork or one very clearly written or printed word done in bold or red in a sea of words that are otherwise black those will become focal points as well because they are differentiated. And that's the relationship that they have with everything else. They are different. They stand out. The relationship is, I am not like the rest of this. Other items that are not an inherently strong draw can be focal points for the same reason. If they're bigger, bolder, brighter, darker, more defined, basically just visually very different from other elements, that can make them a focal point. Elements that are isolated draw our eyes as well. Think of one person sitting off to the side at a park where everyone else is kind of grouped together in one area. That one person is really going to stand out. It really draws our curiosity. Singular isolated elements in your work will basically do the same thing. Now, you can have more than one focal point, like I kind of mentioned, in your work. And most of the time, you do. Commonly, people will put in a primary focal point that people are first drawn to or that dominates the work. And then there are others in secondary positions or there is a hierarchy of multiple focal points. And we'll get into that deeper when we get to the whole hierarchy thing. But for now, I just want you to be aware of what you use as focal points and what determines a focal point so that we can talk about what kind of compositions they create. Because focal points determine much of the basic characteristics of your composition. We're going to take a look at two compositional ideas that are literally centered around focal points. Those concepts are symmetry and asymmetry. You've all heard of this. Symmetry simply means that there is a predictable repetition of elements around a center line or a center point of the work. In other words, there's a mirroring of elements or components in an even manner around those center lines or center points. Now, the most common symmetry, probably what's popping up into your head right now, is what is usually referred to as reflection or mirrored symmetry, where both sides of the work, either left or right or top and bottom, are mirrored images of each other. Another common one is radial symmetry, where a repeated group of elements identically arranged radiate from a center point, so like a mandala or a snowflake even. 
Those are both kind of ideal types of symmetry. There are other types of symmetry that people have defined, but honestly, you can look at any one of those other ones that are redefined and labeled and categorized, and you'll see that they're based pretty much on either mirrored symmetry or radial symmetry. I think the only real exception to that is what is referred to as near symmetry. This is where you create something that is mostly symmetrical, but is either a little bit off or maybe one thing is asymmetrical. Like you make a mandala, but the center point is maybe pushed towards the top and and not at the direct center. But everything otherwise radiates from the center and maybe the shortened lines are shrunk proportionately or elements are eliminated to allow them to be shorter and fit. But otherwise, the arrangement of elements is predictable and based on the center point. Asymmetry, the other basic type of composition, is simply composition that's not symmetrical, that doesn't have a necessarily predictable pattern of elements around a central position. The focal points are maybe off to the left or the right or the top or the bottom, maybe both. And much, if not all the rest of the elements, don't repeat or don't do so in a predictable, regular manner. Usually, I feel like I'm always saying usually, by the way, because this is art and it's not really black and white, which I think I said that already today too. But in any case, a lot of work actually falls in between these two, between symmetry and asymmetry. Like the overall composition might seem asymmetrical, but some areas are actually symmetrical within that, or the whole thing is very symmetrical, except every component that makes up that symmetry is asymmetrical. So like maybe an image of a garden where the arrangement of the plants, the stems, the shadows, the hills off in the distance are all set up asymmetrically. But then there's a gate with fencing in the foreground and the gate is centered and the posts are painted out at regular intervals on either side, very symmetrically presented. This brings in a wonderful contrast between symmetry and asymmetry, as well as organic and non-organic within the work itself. And I think a lot of work really does that. So it doesn't have to be simply symmetrical or simply asymmetrical. There's a lot of mixing in between. And that brings us to the question of how do you decide what kind of symmetry is right for your work? Well, as with anything else in art, you make your decision based on your intention. What is it you want the piece to say or make the viewer feel or what is it you're trying to share? That is the only kind of hard and fast rule here because everything else is kind of up for grabs. If you've worked in art for any length of time, you've probably heard something to the effect that symmetrical composition lacks sophistication, that it is a mark of a novice or a lazy artist. I think that's just a load of garbage. But I've seen artists, especially jewelry and wearable art artists. Of course, I've been around a lot of them. So that's probably why I've seen this so much. But I've seen them bend over backwards to avoid making symmetrical pieces, even though that kind of work is made to adorn some of the most symmetrical things in the world, which is our human bodies. It actually makes sense in a lot of cases to just do it symmetrically because then it echoes and reflects what it is actually going to be worn on. And this is not to say that doing it asymmetrically is bad or anything. It's not. It just depends on what you're trying to say. You may actually want that contrast between the symmetry of the body and the asymmetry of the work. But I do fear that a lot of those artists are making it asymmetrical simply because they're afraid that their work will be seen as unsophisticated. I mean, I've even been in classes where the primary criticism of a piece was that they created a symmetrical composition. And it's not like they're telling them why the symmetrical composition was wrong for that piece. 
just that they used it as if it was off limits. Now, if you're one of those people who have been convinced they should avoid symmetry, I'm here to free you up. (laughs) Symmetry is not only okay, quite often it is the best and only way to compose a piece. Again, it all depends on your intention and symmetry has some very specific concepts it can relay that you may want to take advantage of. For instance, symmetry creates a sense of stability, groundedness, sometimes formality, sometimes power, sometimes tranquility. Very often, it represents some kind of control. It is, at its core, one of our most recognizable concepts of beauty because of the organized nature of symmetry. We do find beauty in predictability. You see it throughout the natural world, in flowers, crystals, leaves, in all creatures, right? In studies on beauty, people are consistently found to respond to and find more attractive faces that are perfectly symmetrical. There's a lot of gorgeous and highly prized art out there that leans heavily on symmetry, but for some reason, people aren't outwardly recognizing it. So think of paintings like Botticelli's Birth of Venus. It's not perfectly symmetrical, but there's a lot of symmetry going on or the famous Last Supper, right? They're both kinds of near symmetry. Or look at like the Taj Mahal or the Palace of Versailles. Perfect symmetry there, and they're gorgeous buildings. Think of synchronized dancing or a spider web. Beautiful as well. We love symmetry. It's a beautiful thing. So no one can say that symmetry in and of itself lacks anything in the way of sophistication or interest. It's not symmetry that lacks sophistication. Master artists do use it all the time, just as newbies do. And although I do have to agree that sometimes newer artists might lean on symmetry a little bit much as a go-to composition. But at the end of the day, it's all in how it's used. It's the whole of the design choices. So yeah, the predictability of symmetry can tip a composition over into boring a bit easier than with asymmetry. But asymmetry can tip a composition into chaos and confusion easier than symmetrical composition. So in either case, it really comes down to the artist's skill and knowledge that will make or break the composition, not the type of composition it is. So yeah, there are also very compelling reasons that you would want to use asymmetry. Asymmetrical compositions are very good at conveying movement, tension, uncertainty, energy, drama, It also tends to be more organic and natural feeling and can convey change and a more involved sense of story. And it can do this much better than symmetry because symmetry is static and story involves the progression of things over time, as does change, of course, because that's the very definition of it. So if you want to share a story from your vacation, say, asymmetry is likely going to support that better than symmetry. But if there's a specific quiet moment you want to capture. Symmetry and its calm might actually serve you better. You see where I'm going with this? Choose the composition for the intention for the piece, not because of any outside expectation or common approach or trend or anything else. And listen to your gut. I think we all have gut instincts about these things with some of us more attuned to our gut instincts than others, but you can feel it out. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to composition than just symmetry and asymmetry. Within both, there is a myriad of different possibilities for how to arrange your elements. And you can do this completely with your instincts, like I'm saying. But if something doesn't feel right or you're at a loss as to where to start composition, 
let me give you a couple easy peasy and kind of classic compositional approaches. Now you can use these guidelines as starting points or lay them over existing pieces and see if you're hitting some of these classic focal point positions that these two things help identify. The first one I want to talk about is called the rule of thirds. The rule of thirds provides a simple but very pleasing way to lay out your elements. It's also pretty dynamic while easily remaining balanced. The rule of thirds is like a tic-tac-toe grid laid over your work. Two lines horizontal, two lines vertical. They're set equidistant from the edges and from each other. And that grid gives you basically nine boxes. If you look at your work in terms of this nine box grid, you end up with several choice positions for focal points and breaking up the space. For instance, the points near where the horizontal and vertical lines intersect are great places to set a primary focal point as well as other secondary focal points. The grid can also be used to break up the space. So if you want like two background textures, instead of just splitting the canvas in half or putting them all willy-nilly, you can put the stronger texture in just one third. So covering three of those squares on your grid in a row. The second texture can take up the rest of the area, but it has more space. So if it's not as visually strong as the other, that extra space gives it more visual weight because it takes up more of the area. And that helps balance it against the visual draw of the stronger texture. You could also have your focal points at one convergence of lines and have secondary elements scattered in a single square or sitting on one of the lines. There are no hard and fast rules about this, but it gives you something to work off of. Now, even though the viewer doesn't see this grid, they do sense it. There is a rightness to the way the space is evenly split. And so when points of interest land on positions on one of those lines, they are a third of the way from the edge. And we sense a relationship between that one third line that our focal point sits on and the fact that there is another two thirds to the other side of it, double the distance the focal point is away from its closest edge. Very few of us will recognize that in a conscious way, but that evenness, that unseen math actually helps to provide a sense of balance and aid in saving your work from just looking all willy nilly. Let's talk about another kind of grid as well. It's a more complicated one in essence, although the use of it is actually very simple. And this is the golden ratio or the golden spiral. Like the rule of thirds, the golden ratio is a kind of grid, but this time it's based on the ratio of things in nature. It's a matter of proportions. So let me see if I can explain this and not confuse anybody or lose you or have you turn this podcast off. The proportion in the golden ratio is something in the range of three-fifths to two-fifths, although that is actually quite incorrect. <laughs> but I use those fractions in my head, so I just have something to hold on to because the ratio is actually 1.618 and some more numbers after that. And that number is actually the sum of those proportions in some kind of math thingy, which that's not really a usable thing for us as artists or just math challenged folks. But what this math has to do with art is that it just happens to map out proportions and placements that are found throughout nature. And again, even though we may not understand it, we may not be doing the math in our head and trying to figure it out as we're looking at it. We do instinctively recognize these proportions and equate it with beauty. 
because it's a form of organization that nature uses and that we recognize. The most common golden ratio grid in art is basically formed by the breaking down of a particular rectangle. Now, this is a bit tedious to explain auditorially, so hopefully (laughs) this comes across. But if you want, go to the description section of the podcast and I'll have a link to an image of this for you so you can kind of follow along. But basically, the golden ratio is a grid that's made up of a rectangle that has a line that splits the rectangle at the point at which the split creates a perfect square. The rest of the rectangle is a rectangle itself. And that leftover rectangle has the exact same proportions as the original big rectangle. The ratio of those proportions is the golden ratio. Let's take a slice of bread in a rectangular shape that just happens to have golden ratio proportions. You cut the slice of bread that's laid in front of you so you have a perfect square of bread, right? The piece of bread that's left over after you've cut your slice so you have a perfect square, it'll be a rectangle that will have the exact proportions of the original rectangular slice of bread. If you keep that bread just as is, you don't move the bread around as you cut it, right? It's all together. If you split that leftover rectangle to create another perfectly square bit of bread in it, it too will leave behind a rectangle that is the exact proportion of the original rectangle. If you find a visual, (laughs) it will make so much more sense. But basically, if you keep cutting rectangles into squares and leave a rectangle behind and then cut that rectangle again, eventually you're going to end up with a little square in this kind of off-center position of this bigger rectangle. So your slice of bread, you're cutting it and cutting it and cutting it, and then eventually you end up with this little crumb in the middle or actually not in the middle. It's actually off-center. It's sort of kind of halfway between the center point and one of the corners. This little crumb of a rectangle turns out to be an ideal position for a focal point in composition. And if you draw a line through from the first square, from one of the corners of the very first square, all the way through all the other squares that were cut, it will create a spiral known as the golden spiral. Basically, it's that spiral you see in a nautilus shell or in a snail shell or in the unfurling of a frond of a fern or in a hurricane in spiral galaxies, in pine cones even. This is all over nature. And even if we don't understand it, we are recognizing it instinctively, and that's why it's used in artwork. Now, those squares and rectangles that we talked about that we cut that piece of bread into, those are what is known as Fibonacci squares, and they're named after this mathematical genius who figured all this stuff out from nature. The squares actually represent a mathematical sequence that is by the same name, the Fibonacci sequence. And they're everywhere, right? In a world that we think is very random, as it turns out, things are very organized, just not necessarily in how we expect. And this organization pops up all over the place, all the time. You can find these proportions on your body. Like in the proportions of your limb, your upper arm compared to the rest of your arm is like the two-fifths part of it, that smaller rectangle, Um, or the whole arm compared to the body also has the same ratio. It's also found in the arrangement of flower petals, in the way tree branches grow and split, even in the double helix of DNA. We've been seeing this ratio everywhere our whole lives. And so we instinctively recognize it. And again, we find order and comfort in it. And strangely enough, or not so strangely, that tiniest little square crumb in the off-center position in the bread or the Fibonacci squares as we now know them, 
that great position for a focal point, it also lands very closely to where the lines would cross if you overlaid a rule of thirds grid on the golden ratio grid. Interesting, isn't it? So you can lay the Fibonacci squares as a grid over your art and put focal points in that kind of ideal spot where the tiniest square is. You can also lay things out on that spiral to echo the golden spiral, leaning into that other instinctively recognized compositional arrangement, right? By the way, the grid doesn't have to be in any particular direction. So that golden focal point thing, that's not an official term, by the way. It's just what I'm calling it right now so we can reference it as we talk since we don't have any visuals here. That point can end up in one of four places just by flipping the Fibonacci grid around. And if the proportions of your canvas aren't a perfect golden ratio, right? They may not be rectangular. They may be square. They may be a long rectangle, whatever. You can actually just squish it or stretch it to fit and still use that same spot and the same spiral to find good places for your focal points and various elements. Keep in mind, these compositional grids and standards are not used in a particularly precise way. They are really loose guides. Focal points don't have to land on the middle of the golden spiral or exactly where the lines cross on the rule of thirds grid. So you can eyeball it once you have a grasp of what these grids do, and then you can use your gut instincts, right? Man, I wish I could show you some examples as I talk, but. Well, you actually have this at your fingertips because our modern technology has given us easy access to it. Most smartphones have a grid overlay for the camera app, as do most tablets and many of the common photo editing software programs. Almost all of them have the rule of thirds grid, and many will also have the golden ratio overlay with the golden spiral in it as well. You'll have to look up online how to find them on your particular device, but then with those grids in place, frame your work or your sketches or whatever it is that you need to assess in your camera app, take a picture if you need, and see where everything lands in those grids. There are other kinds of classical compositional techniques, such as triangular composition, where you have three focal points, usually a primary and a couple secondaries that you triangulate. Usually you spread them out across the composition so that when viewers look at it, they kind of visually connect lines between them and they see that triangle. This is a really classic form of composition that was used a lot in like the Renaissance and a lot of religious paintings. So if you want to see examples, just put in triangular composition into Google and you'll have examples come up. These compositions have a certain strength and solidity that reflects the strength of triangles. The triangle shape is known as the strongest of all shapes. So it goes to reason that the triangular compositions also feel very strong. There's also diagonal composition. It's another common and kind of classic composition. It can get a little wacky sometimes, but if you line up focal points and major elements in your work on diagonals, it creates a more dynamic composition. So if you want something with a lot of movement or drama, arrange things diagonally. And that doesn't mean everything needs to be on the same diagonal line, but if you lay things out so that you can go from one important element to another, in a kind of diagonal trajectory, and you can create more than one of these diagonals in your work. But what you're doing is you're developing relationships between various elements on a diagonal line, an invisible diagonal line, or maybe a visible diagonal line, but one or more diagonal lines that these things are on. And we start seeing those, we start making the connection between the items. And when you see the diagonal, diagonal has always been a very dynamic line that shows movement. 
again, you can go online and find examples of this and you'll see what I mean when I say this can get kind of wacky because in some pieces there's diagonals going back and forth all through it like it's a friggin' um, was that cat's cradle thing <laughs> that we did in grade school. But in any case, these things are guidelines that can help you figure out what might be wrong, can help you nudge things around in your composition to line things up better and make it feel more balanced or comfortable. But again, use your instincts. We see versions of composition throughout nature, throughout other artwork that we're seeing, right? And we do take that in, even if not consciously. And you'll have an instinct about it. So I'm thinking maybe this month you look at your artwork and look at other people's artwork and ask yourself, where are the focal points and whether the composition is symmetrical or asymmetrical? See if you can find triangular composition or diagonal composition in any of the pieces that you're analyzing. Just get familiar and comfortable with looking at the composition of work. And if you do this all month, that instinctual sense that I think is already within you, I think you could really bring those forward into the surface. So then next time you try to translate something from your head into the real world for your artwork, that instinct about good composition may help that translation quite a bit. And it'll just be there waiting for you because you've practiced it, because you've learned it like language. You've focused on it. You've concentrated on it. You've taken it in and it's become part of how you see art. That is my wish and hope for you when it comes to some of this basic composition stuff. So next month, we'll actually do some more on composition. It's really fun stuff. It's talking about how we lead the eye through the ways that we can do that, the ways you can recognize it and arrange things to make that happen. And I've just always been fascinated by the fact that we can kind of manipulate our viewer by doing this. So that's something to look forward to. Again, next month, it should be the first uh, Friday of February. In the meantime, if you want to reach out to me with comments or questions, please do so. Go to the sagearts.com. You can go to the contact page there. You can go to Facebook or Instagram and go to the Sage Arts podcast pages to direct message me or leave comments on posts. You can also, if you really like what I'm doing here and you want to support it and you want to give back, I do have donation buttons for buy me a coffee or PayPal. And PayPal has a way of doing regular donations. So you can just give a little bit every month if you like. And we've got quite a number of people doing that now. Thank you all so much for doing that and helping me take care of my backend costs. And another way that you can help out is to hit the follow button on your podcast player. Not only is that a wonderful way for you to get notified when new episodes are out, but it also pushes us up on the search engines. So when people are looking for arts and creative podcasts, we can grow our little community here. All right. I hope you enjoy looking at composition the rest of this month. I think that will really feed your muse a lot. And just go out and do new things, as I always say. Be true to your weirdness. And I hope you join me next time on the Sage Arts Podcast.